Making podcasts, making podcasts, making podcasts, making podcasts. That's what we're about to do. Okay. You forgot to join in. Welcome to I Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm joined for the one-year finale by my special co-host, avant-garde pet sitter, Peter Cook. Foo! Foo! That's woof backwards. You never know what's going to happen with this guy. He's so avant-garde. So unexpected, so original, so creative. And of course, collector of discontinued bubbly water flavors, Jeremy Ruggles. Tell us about your top five favorite discontinued bubbly water flavors. Banana peel, number five. Number four, kiwi strawberry honeydew. Number three, the very controversial pineapple pizza. (laughs) no ham just the straight pineapple pizza pineapple and cheese yeah it's controversial for many reasons okay it goes deep with the controversy controversy number two was a um it was a blackberry berry jam they called it that was a mix of every known berry okay and number one drum roll for number one was a flavor called plain. Whoa. P-L-A-N-E. No. P-L-A-I-N. Plain. Causal plain. Astral plain. See, I'm avant-garde over here. Oh, okay. Can't be stopped. I'm larger than life. It's season one (laughs) finale. Coming in hot. Okay, so Peter, uh, I believe the plan, because I don't know what's going on anymore, is that we're going to talk about a record for a little bit, and then we're going to get a little misty-eyed talking about the times we've shared together, and then we're taking a few weeks off, right? Sounds right to me. What record have you selected for the grand finale, the greatest record we have talked about for an entire year? What is it? Well, I, I don't know if either of you caught it, but I just gave a little teaser for it and what I said. This is Jody Watley's sophomore release on mca records 1989 it's called larger than life all right what track are we going to open up with we're going to start with the lead single which was the opening track on the album real love here we go I wanna love that serious No time 
boy, oh boy, those drums were 100% recorded in 1989. That definitely shows. Yeah, 1989. This is the furthest along in time an album that we featured on the podcast was released, isn't it? The most, I guess, the most recently, the most recent album. We're practically in the future now. Yeah, that's, that's what the future sounds like in 1989, those drums. Yep. Solid synth bass tracks, though. I love a good synth bass track that it was punching. I was into it. Good bass lines. Feeling it. This definitely comes out of the 80s funk. This is rooted in the 80s funk sound that you enjoy, Sean. Oh, you know I'm all about it. What is both of your background and knowledge of Jody Watley going into this? Straight zero. Though when I listened back, I realized I did know the song Friends already. I just didn't know who made it. Uh-huh. Yeah, there's some hits on this album. That was one of them that we just listened to, and Friends is another, and we'll get to that shortly. How about you, Sean? I've seen the records around a bunch, and I think I just always assumed she sounded like Anita Baker, and I never listened to it, which was a mistake. But uh, yeah, I know the song Friends and that, that last song sounded a little bit familiar too. So yeah, that Minimal. was Real Love was one of the biggest songs of 1989 because Jody Watley was huge. She was a huge artist in the late 80s as, and she was also a trendsetter and we'll get to that as well. And but, it was also the year I was born. Yeah, this, uh, this album came out a few months before our beloved Sean Hartman Kind of paved the way for my existence, I would say. It's kind of how I've always thought of this record. (laughs) Set the tone. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Real Love was number one on both the R&B and dance charts, and it peaked at number two on the Billboard Hot 100 in May 1989. So you were about three months away from existing, Sean? Two months? Two months away? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might have, like, heard this in utero if my mom was at like a shopping mall kind of thing. So it's, it's possible that this music has been with me my entire life. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a good thing we're, you know, ending the season on something that's so important to you. Yep. So that was written by Jody Watley and the producer of this album, which is a fella named Andre Simone. Does that mean anything to either of you? Oh, it sure does. I've been listening to one of his records a bunch lately. His 1985 album, AC, a whole lot lately. So, you know, just a few years before this one, but he's got that great funk sound and a bit of a Prince connection, which I'm sure you will elaborate on. I will do that right now. Yeah, Andre Simone was friends with Prince. Like, and we're talking in their youth, I believe, kind of came up together. And Andre Simone was his touring bassist in the very early days of like the first few Prince albums. I think he only actually appeared on one track because, you know, because it's Prince, so Prince records everything Mm -hmm. (laughs) himself. Uh, He did some harmonies on one track. He did end up parting ways with Prince eventually because he had to do his own thing. He also worked with Evelyn Champagne King, a a connection to this podcast, one of the albums Mm -hmm. that we featured in season one. Very similar aesthetic to this record as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Another few names that Andre Simone is associated with. Tom Jones. I think we all know who that is. Heard of. Adam Ant. Okay. And Pebbles. Do, you, do we know who Pebbles is? Negative. Uh, seen it around. Don't know if I've listened. Pebbles had her own music, but she's maybe most notable for being the person who formed TLC or was instrumental in, in getting TLC signed. Oh. And Andre Simone 
and Jody Watley were later married for a time for a few years in the early 90s, and they have a son together. They were definitely, they seem to have a very solid working relationship from kind of the onset of her solo career. The video for the song we just listened to, Real Love, was nominated for six MTV Video Music Awards, which at the time was a record, and that was held until Michael and Janet Jackson's Scream video received 11 nominations in 1995. But that kind of just gives you an idea of how huge Jody Watley was in the late 80s, and I feel like very few people know who she is now. Not a name you hear uh, getting brought up very often anymore. No, no. And even by the early to mid-90s, when I was really starting to tune into a lot of R&B and hip-hop, she was only like on the periphery at that point. I think she had a solid fan base, so she might still... She might get played on BET occasionally, but overall, even by the mid-90s, she wasn't at the commercial height that she had been just a few years earlier. The video for Real Love was directed by David Fincher. Oh, Oh, that is surprising. Yeah, the director of noteworthy films such as Seven, Fight Club, The Social Network, and Gone Girl, just to name a few. He was That's what he was doing in the 80s. He was a major music video director. Hmm. He did stuff for Paula Abdul, Rick Springfield, Aerosmith, Billy Idol, Iggy Pop, Don Henley, Steve Winwood, Sting, The Outfield, and Michael Jackson, even. And I've heard of a couple of those people. <laughs> well, you'll def- you've definitely heard of this next one. Probably the most noteworthy, most notably, he worked on a few Madonna videos, including Express Yourself and Vogue. Yeah. Pretty major Madonna videos. I was getting pretty heavy Madonna vibes from this record. Yeah, we're going to get into that right now. Fine. It's, yeah, we're going to get into it, Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we've established this, but uh, Jeremy is the resident Madonna fan on this podcast. I don't know if, how established that's been. Our Patreon listeners know better than our regular listeners because Jeremy featured a Madonna single, Who's That Girl?, on one of our Patreon episodes. Truth. Which was a pretty good episode and pretty good track. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> I would say, honestly, in, in my genuine opinion, it's worth paying $5 a month to have access to. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. It's a great song. It was a great episode. Legendary episode. It was premium content. Literally. Premium content. Oh, but not that. this is just the season finale. That's a different thing. So Vogue, yeah, Fincher directed the video for Madonna's Vogue. Do you guys know what Vogue or Voguing is? It's like the dance move where you move your hands in your face and act like you're getting a picture taken of you or something. Yeah, it kind of consists of a series of stylized poses that people strike, imitating fashion models and whatnot, like you're getting your picture taken. Exactly. I guess I should have inferred that from the Madonna song, but... I got that she was saying, like, don't just stand there. Let's get to it. Strike a pose. There's nothing to it. Vogue. I think that's what she said anyway. (laughs) So that was, uh, there's several different stories of where voguing originated. Some say that it was created in Rikers Island Prison, where inmates would copy the poses from Vogue magazines and battle each other. They'd have, like, dance-offs. Yeah. (laughs) And... That's what I assumed had happened, so I'm glad that have wow. that confirmed. <laughs> and so there was, 
in some source of some sources that I've read say that one of these inmates was named Paris Dupree, and that Paris Dupree brought voguing to the Harlem LGBTQ ballroom scene in the 1970s and 80s. And the ballroom scene, I wasn't really that familiar with this. I don't know if either of you are. It was a scene that was important. It was an important refuge for gay and trans youth at the time. I know. I think that's where uh, Paris is burning. The documentary kind of focuses in on that scene. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I know that title. I think the ballroom scene, yeah, like it was a refuge. You know, a lot of the pe- uh, people of that community had to, uh, you know, quote unquote, play it straight through, you know, most of the day. Then this is somewhere they could go and be themselves, this ballroom scene. And although voguing was popularized in the mainstream by Madonna's song, Vogue, and its accompanying music video that was, or that was directed by David Fincher, uh, Jody Watley was the first to feature voguing in her music videos. Uh, the video for Still a Thrill from her first album as well as the uh, second single from this album, which was Friends. Both of those music videos featured voguing in them. And I'd like to get to that song, Friends, at this point. Both of you are familiar with it. Mm -hmm. And it's noteworthy because I think this is... We've talked a lot about hip-hop on this podcast, but it seemed very improbable to me that we were going to actually be able to feature any hip-hop on the podcast because I don't think that typically 80s hip-hop you're going to find in the dollar bin. I don't, maybe you, Mike, you could correct me on that, Sean. <laughs> well, you're going to typically find the singles all over the dollar bin, but the LPs are less common just because uh, hip-hop grew in popularity during the cassette era. So yeah. DJs were buying 12-inch singles, and the, the most of the fans were buying the cassettes of the full lengths. Totally, yep. I definitely associate hip-hop with the cassette era and it actually hip hop sounded really good on the compressed cassettes. Like yeah, the, absolutely. The drums sound great on there. But so this track friends features Eric B and Rakim. And it, this is one of the very first R and B hip hop blends. And let's get to it. This song from my understanding is one of the earliest constructions of like a pop song with a featuring rap verse to it correct absolutely yep and we'll talk more about that when we come back Don't get 
led on a lead in the wrong direction. A dead end's next thing. The detour, life's like a seesaw. Ups and downs, and I bet there'll be more. Potholes and obstacles in a path that's righteous. At times you need a hand to fight this. Way of life, straighten up, take the thought and replace it. And don't you act too faced it. Cause jealousy and envy, and you still act friendly. You can fry in the end when you pretend to be Nowadays, you wouldn't bat an eye at someone rapping a verse over an R&B track or a pop track, but in 1989, there was almost no precedent for this. Aside from the majority of hip-hop that existed before that sounding exactly like that, because up until about 1987, somewhere around there, all hip-hop that was commercially available and recorded was basically just funk instrumentals with people rapping over top, because all the producers like... You, you want to just rap over a drum machine? No one will buy that. That's unheard of. It wasn't until like Run DMC. It was like, no, this is what everything on the street sounds like, and they like it, so there's other people that want to hear it. And then... Yeah, know. but those didn't have singing on them and verses, Sean. Sometimes they did. Sometimes. Sometimes they did. But the, the music backing track was was very much the same. So like that style of beat, while it doesn't sound like what a hip-hop beat should now, was exactly what hip-hop had sounded like up until that point, was mainly what I was saying. Well, the key point is that this was on Top 40 Radio. Yeah, get yeah, him, Peter. Exactly. <laughs> get him, I'm, Peter. I'm not, I'm not trying to argue like, no, this is normal. I don't know why you're talking about it. I'm just saying like it's, it's interesting. <laughs> the, In a historical context. <laughs> so there is, there is definitely one big song that, Jody Watley herself mentions that was before this, and that was Shaka Khan's I Feel For You featuring Melly Mel. Yeah, totally. That and that was 1984. That was that was a few years, that was five years before this. But um Jody said that she got the idea to do this. It was actually funny enough, it was from a Patty LaBelle song that featured, of all people, Michael McDonald. <laughs> and it was called On My Own. And it, which is, she thinks is kind of random that it would give her that idea, but she just thought when she heard that, I think probably because to some extent, you know, as funky as Michael McDonald is, she probably saw it as a combining of different musical cultures. Mm-hmm. And uh, she thought, wouldn't it be cool if I did something like that with Eric B. and Rakim? And she pitched the idea to her label, MCA, and they basically didn't even know what she was proposing. They didn't get it at all. Right. Right. <laughs> they were clueless. And, you know, they just said no. But Jody kept pushing. And so eventually MCA came around, but they suggested the Fresh Prince, a.k.a. Will Smith. Oh, God. <laughs> he's, he's so hot these days. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Jody said no, that wouldn't that wouldn't be as interesting. She, she was a huge fan of Eric B. and Rakim, and they had the street sensibility that she was looking for on the track. Right, right. 
I also want to say that Eric B's scratching was so perfect in there. I almost thought it, it fit better in the funk song format than it normally does in the hip hop format. It works so well in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So MCA conceded, and this is one of the first pop songs to feature both a singer and a rapper. And yeah, that, that turntablism from Eric B also adds a really cool element. And I agree. It, it works, yeah, like you said, almost maybe better than it did on Paid in Full. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> as much, I mean, I love Paid in Full, and I think it was revolutionary. That For our listeners, that was the Eric B. and Rakim's. Was that their debut, 1987 or so? That was their debut. Really uh, sure. That was that was 88, I believe. Okay, it was 88. I could I could be wrong. It's, Boy, now I'm just questioning myself. I feel like, well, 88 is like the year that all these legendary records came out, and I feel like Paid in Full is one of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it takes a nation and Paid in Full. It yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it's the year of the, the birth of conscious hip-hop and a, a stylistic shift into more real topics than just party music. Speaking of It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, which was Public Enemy's album that year, there was a remix of this track done by the bomb squad do you either do you know who they are was that their like production team yeah that they, public enemy used? they were they were involved with public enemy yeah and right. it's an extended remix uh the the video features that it's like seven or eight minutes long and they kind of restructured the whole song and in the outro of our episode today we're going to listen to an instrumental version of that that will be guys our- i was wrong paid in full was 87 and then my actual favorite record of theirs, Follow the Leader, came out in 88. Ah, that was their sophomore release. Right, right. Okay. Right. Paid in Full is, like, big because it was the f- landmark first. I mean, I, I think we should mention that Rakim, for that time period, he was a revolutionary rapper. Like, what he was doing, I think he was inspired by Coltrane in the way that he flowed. Yeah, he was the first rapper to use a syncopation in the way that he rapped because before that all the MCs were just very on beat, not a lot of flow, not a lot of interesting rhythms going on. And it could easily, easily be argued that Rakim changed the face of hip hop more than any other artist since. Yeah. Because, uh, because yeah, like instantly you had to adopt the new way of rapping or be considered a dinosaur once they came out. Yeah, if you think of like Audio 2, Top Billin is right around the same time, and it's just so like, da, 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 da. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So it's, so it's really cool that additionally, Eric B. and Rakim are lending their skills to, you know, this monumental moment in music as well. Yep. And so let's, yeah, so we talked about the guests now, the, the major important guests on this record, but who else is on this? Well, I was looking it up and they're all the top session players of the 80s. Almost all of these guys worked with either Madonna or Michael Jackson or both. Whoa. On keys, we have Gardner Cole, worked with Cher, Michael McDonald, and Tina Turner as well. You can basically assume that all these people worked with Madonna or Michael Jackson. It got so repetitive that I wasn't going to say that for each one of them. <laughs> On drums, we have John J.R. Robinson from the the group Rufus. Do we know who Rufus is? Rufus and Shaka Khan. Yep, that's, yeah. that's where Shaka Khan came from. He also worked with the Pointer Sisters and Steve Winwood. I think he's the drummer on Higher Love. And okay. Give me a higher love, yeah. That was beautiful. Thank you. Uh, percussionist, I'm guessing additional percussion, 
Paulino de Costa. He worked with, you know, yeah, Michael Jackson and Madonna and Celine Dion. Uh, I think I wrote that down before I decided I wasn't going to say that for every artist. The classic trio. You can't mention <laughs> one of those three artists without talking about the other two. Uh, on guitar, we have a guy named Dean Parks. He worked with a little group that we've mentioned a lot on this podcast during season one, Steely Dan, as well as basically you name it. And uh, he, he, it's one of those lists that's just on and on and on. Um, notably, he was the guitarist on the late 70s Bread reunion tour. You know, that's a, an important one for this podcast because we talked mm-hmm. about Bread in depth. Those are just a few. Those are some of the people involved. Of course, um, Andre Simone is on a lot of different instruments on here as well probably programming and whatnot. I think they're using, I want to say they're using a Fairlight synthesizer on this record. Could be wrong. We'll go with that. Those are, yeah, some of the people involved in making the sounds. But let's talk about Jody Watley. Let's get into her bio just a little bit here. Jody Vanessa Watley, she was born January 30th, 1959 in Chicago, Illinois. And she is the goddaughter of soul singer Jackie Wilson. Whoa. Family friend. Ah, yep. He keeps getting mentioned a lot, too. I know. Hey, she, have you have you made a list yet of every artist that has been casually referenced on this podcast and then compiled a top five list of who had the most mentions? That's what I'm going to do in our retrospective at the end of this uh, this episode. No. <laughs> what we need is one of those like conspiracy theory boards with all the names and like little strings tied between each one. Sure. See who's the most connected artist that we've talked about so yeah. far. Yeah. All right, there's some right, ideas. That's, for... that's your that's your assignment, Peter. It's your yeah, work. That's ideas for season two. <laughs> yeah, she actually made Jody Watley made her stage debut at the age of eight with Jackie Wilson. And she although she was born in Chicago, she ended up growing up in Los Angeles. And at age 14, she re- landed a role as a dancer on Soul Train. And she was one of the most popular dancers on the program and became recognized as a trendsetter for her style and her dance moves. And in 1977, she was 18 and was recruited by the Soul Train booking agent, Dick Griffey, as well as the show creator, Don Cornelius, to join the R&B vocal group, Shalimar. They were a new act at the time on Soul Train Records, which would soon become Solar Records. Are either of you familiar with Shalimar? Oh yeah, yep. Very common funk group that you see in the bins all the time. They were highly- They had some hits. They were successful, yeah. They were highly successful. She did several albums with them, but she felt stifled creatively. And in 1983, she left the group and moved to London. And she collaborated with a number of artists there, including Musical Youth and Art of Noise. An odd Interesting. Co- yeah, what an odd combination of groups to collaborate with. And she was invited by Bob Geldof to appear on the 1986 charity single, Do They Know It's Christmas by Band-Aid. So she's in there along with all those, <laughs> I think it's mostly British performers that are on there. She then returned to the U.S. and began working on her self-titled debut solo album with several producers, including Bernard Edwards, oh. who we talked about on the Diana Ross episode. What group is he from? Chick. <laughs> yeah, and of course, and Andre Simone was also involved on that debut. And that album had a huge impact. She won a Grammy Award for Best New Artist in 1988. 
And the album produced three top 10 singles, including Looking for a New Love, in which she coined the phrase, Hasta la Vista, baby, which was then reused the following year by Tone Loke in Wild Thing, which led to it being used a few years later by Arnold Schwarzenegger in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. (laughs) Yeah, you didn't know Jody Watley's responsible for that. Why haven't we been talking about more Arnold Schwarzenegger connections to albums? That's what this podcast has really been missing. (laughs) True. (laughs) I know. All this wasted time, we're going to have to really up our game in season two. (laughs) So I'll finally start doing some research for my episodes. Yeah. (laughs) So once again, she's a trendsetter. Musically and fashion-wise, she consciously made fashion a backdrop for her music. And... uh, with her initial solo success, Jodie Watley became a fashion icon. While she was living in London, she had discovered a little-known designer named Jean-Paul Gaultier. How to say that? Do we do we know who that is? No, it's a fashion person, fashion designer from London. Duh. You guys <laughs> said you hadn't done that much research for this. You clearly did. <laughs> yeah, we know our shit. I want to say it's Jean-Paul Gaultier. He designed Madonna's cone bra, uh, the one that she's famous for, for wearing. And she started wearing that in 1990. Madonna started wearing the cone bra in 1990. Jody Watley got one in 1984. Oh, shit. That's six <laughs> <What>? years earlier. <laughs> and she bought several pieces. Are you pieces. trying to turn Madonna into Elvis on this episode? <laughs> Is that what's going on? There's a little give and take. There's a give and take back and forth between them. But, you know, we want to, I feel like Jody's the overlooked artist in this case. So. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, Jody Watley bought several pieces from Jean-Paul Gaultier and made them focal points in her music videos. And not even Madonna or Janet Jackson were doing fashion like Jody Watley was in the 80s. When she was asked to appear in publications like Vogue, and Harper's Bazaar, her label, MCA, didn't understand what being in a fashion magazine had to do with selling records and refused to pay to fly her to New York. So she had to pay out of her own pocket for those opportunities. Nowadays, it seems every established rapper or R&B singer is also an aspiring fashion entrepreneur. But Jody Watley was kind of at the vanguard of, of doing that. And she says that when she sees someone like Rihanna getting... Shoe designer of the year. Or is it Rihanna? Is that how you say her name? It's Rihanna. It's Rihanna. Okay. Yes. So jo- Jody Watley says that when she sees someone like Rihanna getting shoe designer of the year, she feels very proud and indirectly a part of the strides they've been able to make. The album cover for this was taken by fashion photographer Stephen Meisel. He was a regular collaborator of Madonna's. He had done her Like a Virgin album cover. So Madonna was first in that case, Jeremy. So are you happy? This isn't a contest, Peter. Oh, Oh, okay. He also, of course, he did her uh, Madonna's sex book as well. So yeah, Jodi Watley was at the forefront of the fashion movement associated with music, the music business as well. Well, I'd like to play another track right now. We're going to flip to side two, play a non-hit. We talked about Dean Park's the Steely Dan guitarist, or at least, you know, someone who had worked with Steely Dan, he has some really nice acoustic guitars on this selection. It's called Precious Love. Precious. 
That was one of four songs to have love in the title of it. Is that on all? this album. It, it seems like it might be more than that. Are you sure? Every song they mention love in, but this one has it right up in the title. Okay. Okay. They want you to really know that that's what this one's about. Well, I think the same thing happened when the Evelyn Champagne King where all of the titles were love with a direction up, down, left, right. Oh, true. Yep. And uh, Jeremy and I were also earlier talking about how it uh, shares the same affliction of being a a kind of tiring album listen when you're just at home chilling. It's got the hits, but it, it doesn't work quite as well as a, a full just sit down and play the whole thing. Her albums, as they go, actually become more diverse. I was reading that and I was like, why did Peter pick this one? It seems like her earliest works are pop records that are kind of generic, lyrically speaking, in their scope. And then it looks like she went like further and further out with like interesting songwriting. But I suppose you're not going to find that on vinyl. That's the exact reason, Jeremy. <laughs> you, you, you nailed it right there. You thought it out and you got it. Yeah, this is pretty much the last <laughs> album by her that you're going to find on vinyl for cheap. And you'll find this very cheap. I think Sean can confirm that. Oh, it's out there. Yeah. For sure. I'm super curious to hear her uh, her weirdo stuff after this, though. That I could see that being really cool. Oh, it gets so good. Huh. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that right now. So in response to the commercial success of her first two albums and all the recognition she received, do you think the MCA gave her complete artistic freedom from here on out? I'm going to say no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it seems that... She M- is a black woman, so it's it's probably a yes, right? From MCA and 89. Yeah. It, 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 <laughs> they, it seems that MCA still wanted to shoehorn her into a formula and she was not going to do that. Jody Watley, I think her measure of success was centered on artistic growth and freedom and her subsequent releases, Affairs of the Heart in 1991 and Intimacy in 1993, those albums increasingly displayed uh, maturation as a songwriter and vocalist with a partial shift towards soul ballads and adult themes, all while retaining her funkiness and her stylishness. And in 1992, amidst those two albums, in between those two albums, she accepted an invitation from President George Herbert Walker Bush to perform at the White House And uh, Watley used this opportunity to advocate that the government provide more support and funding for public schools. And on her albums from the early 90s, she also addressed social issues like AIDS and domestic violence. And she received critical praise, but her skittish label did not promote these records. So her sales declined. And because her sales declined, she was dropped from MCA in 1995. So she created her own label to release her fifth album, Affection, which was produced by Booker T. Jones and Angelo Earl. Hmm. And on the title track, she aligned herself with the gay community. And that's actually the song that I remember from 1995, seeing that on BET. And that's definitely kind of more of that quiet storm genre. That's why when we were talking about Isaac Hayes, I kind of associated, I thought of Keith Sweat by this time was also doing stuff more along those lines. So Jody Watley and Keith Sweat came to mind as artists similar to that romantic, quiet storm Isaac Hayes stuff. 
Yeah, definitely. When I went back and and checked out this album because I just got this album recently, I want I decided I wanted to do something upbeat and overlooked for our final episode of the season. And I got this album and was very surprised at how much more like new Jack swing synthesized funk is featured on this record that we're listening to today. Yeah. So once Jody Watley went independent, her albums from the mid nineties to the mid two thousands still fared decently as far as sales due to her devoted global fan base that she had acquired through nonstop touring. And she's still releasing music to this day she tends to do it in the form of singles. She's abandoned the album format. I think her last album was 2006. But she's an artist that's never been concerned with being popular or having hits. Everything she's done has been authentic to herself. It's work that she can be proud of, first and foremost. And she thinks that, that the fans pick up on that and respond to that. And I just wanted to talk about her because I think that she definitely was a trendsetter. She did a lot of things that she doesn't get a lot of acknowledgement for. I think the, the hip-hop thing alone is pretty cool, Having uh, being able to feature an album on this podcast on Bargain Bin Records that has Eric B. and Rakim on it. It's really special. Yeah, yeah. I'd say you've got a quintessential I'd buy that for a dollar album pick right here, bud. Especially for our DJs out there. Drop that friends on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's some bangers on here. It's one of those deals where it has the hit and it has a few duds, but I think that most of the tracks could start a party. Yeah, yeah. Solid pick for sure. Worth it. Speaking of solid picks, should we do it? Should we hit him with it? Peter, we didn't tell you, but we made lists of our top five records that we didn't bring to the table. So you're just going to have to do it on the fly. So we'll do ours first. Yeah, we'll let you go last so you can think of it while we're doing this. All right, I'm going to go first. These are in order. So uh, number five, I've got introducing the Iceman's Band. Because as I said on that episode, I've seen it a bunch, never listened to it. And I was way into that record. That is top of my list for albums we've covered that I don't own yet that I want to buy next time I see one. And I've got uh, next one, Stephen Halpern, Eventide, which I mean... His albums all kind of sound the same, and I knew I liked it, so it wasn't a surprise, but I also just thought that was a fun episode. Jeremy, you did a great job. Thank you. And then back-to-back Jeremy picks. I really liked Materials One Down. That's an album I bought shortly after doing that episode, and I've been playing it a bunch, and it gets better every time. I got to say, check that album out if you haven't yet. And then number two, Tammy Wynette, Another Lonely Song. That album, I've been playing that so much, Peter. That is such a good record. Holy crap. Glad to hear it. Number one. Does anybody have a guess? Peter, you want to guess what number one is for me? Well, I guess is the criteria here that it could be, is it? Is this just, since I since you're dropping this on me, are these just uh, ones that other co-hosts brought or could it be guests too? It can be guests. And I also did it records that I was relatively unfamiliar with before doing the episode. So number one for me, The Supremes, Floyd Joy. Oh. <laughs> uh... I bought a sealed copy for a few bucks at a record show. It sounds so good. And man, even the, the tracks we didn't feature on the episode are just as good as everything on the episode. That's a classic for sure. Wow. DJ you Earl Jordan it. flipped Supreme, renowned Supreme's hater Sean's mind. 
on the Supremes with one record. On the you know the mid to late period Supremes, I've come around on that. Jeremy, what's the list? All right, I'm gonna hit him with this list. Coming in number five, Beach Boys today. Our guy Rich from Lansing brought that to us. Rich Tupica. And yeah. And I like thought I knew Beach Boys stuff. Like I thought I knew all of it already. <laughs> and that album is really good. And I was shocked. I've been buying a lot of Beach Boys records that I didn't own for about the past year now. And I picked that one up as well after hearing that episode or being on that episode. Yeah, Beach Boys have got a lot of uh, a lot of sleepers, man. Worth digging into. Number four, Bohannon, R.I.P. Aw, cut loose. Can't I don't even know what to say. It it's cuts. so good. It's so good. Number three, another Sean pick, Herbie mm. Man, Memphis Underground. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's one of those I just I thought it would be a lame thing, so I just never listened to Herbie Man, but that album slaps. Uh, number two, the only overlap I have from Sean's list, Tammy Wynette, another lonely song. Legendary record. Yeah, it's really good. And Was that number two for both of us then? I, was that your number two? Yeah. Yeah. That Solid was number two album number right there. Two. <laughs> good to be number two. Number one for me personally was the Melanie Gather Me. Ooh, that nice. makes sense. Okay. I just never listen to Melanie, even though it's straight up my alley and exactly the kind of thing I would like. All right, Jeremy, off the dome, top five least favorite albums that we've done. Ever? That we've done. That we've done. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to give also an honorable mention to ones I wrote down but didn't make my list. Synergy Chords. Uh, I know Orson likes that one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he does that every time you mention Synergy's chords. Katie brought us that one. It's a good one. And then Earth, Wind, and Fire, all in all. Uh, they're not my favorite band of all time yet. But that's only because you didn't follow through and have not watched the live videos. I haven't watched the live videos yet. And also, they don't have to be your favorite band of all time. You just have to admit that they are the greatest band of all time. <laughs> okay. Yeah, those I'm are two distinct things. Sub- yeah, I'm still allowing for subjective taste. Like, you don't even have to fucking like Earth, Wind, and Fire, but you do have to admit that they are the greatest band of all time. Wow. Peter, you got your list yet? Oh, yeah. I already had it. I, I, I have a bug. We thought we were ambushing you and you were just ready. How many lists did you have <laughs> laying in wait just in case? <laughs> I came ready to talk about stuff. Number five, I would say the uh, John Olson's pick, the Donna and Roy Moe. He gave me you. I like that one for the concept he brought to the show that was a different angle of cheap record collecting that we hadn't really covered. True. The, the idea of sort of finding your own path, the things that people might just flip right past, not even consider to be something of value. And, you know, and it's, he's not necessarily original to that idea. Uh, I think both Useless Eater and Taylor Rowley also commented on liking to collect Christmas, uh, Christian records, you know, for, but everyone has their kind of own various reasons for kind of getting into those niche areas of collecting. So I thought that was a cool addition to the podcast. 
I will say that was definitely my number one runner-up because I have found my own copy of that record since then. I was super excited about it. Wow. But I also I haven't actually played it since then. I don't know how many times I will, but I'm still very proud to have found that. Especially before leaving Michigan. I don't think those are going to turn up in Philadelphia anytime soon. No, and and, and that's where that one, it's kind of more the idea behind it than that specific album that you should look for. Um, yeah, I'm I'm super excited to start finding all those weird like off the radar private press records in the Philly area. Yeah, if if you didn't catch last episode, listener, Sean is moving to Philly. One more thing I wanted moving, to say, but uh, but not not leaving the podcast. I'll still phone it in, like yeah. I always do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's your mo. Uh, one more thing I wanted to mention about that album where uh, while we're talking about it, Sean, is I don't think we mentioned that your wife, Sam, believes that she may have seen Donna and Roy Moe perform a number of years ago. Uh, we are less certain now that it was them, but it is possible. She does remember a older blind couple doing a guest performance at a church. She's, she's not sure if it was them, but it's possible. It's possible. There may have been bells, so who knows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, so that's number five. Number four, we're going to go with Bread that Steve Plastic Crime Wave Krakow brought. I, that's a band that I've heard people say that they got good stuff, and I had not yet found it, but that album sold me on it. I was really into that Bread record. Yeah, definitely. It changed my idea of what Bread did. So. Oh, definitely. Number three, we are going to go with Roberta Flack, Feel Like Making Love. Mm, I I thought about including that one as well. So I know my wife, Ellen, fell in love with that album, and I I really like it too. That is a fantastic album. One point for Team Jeremy. Yeah. Not that we're counting over here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) Got the chalkboard out and tallying. Oh, yeah. We're keeping score here, baby. All right, so we're down to the to the last two, and I'm gonna say Minnie Ripperton, number two. Taylor Rowley brought that one, and that was Perfect Angel. That was the name of that album. That that was I. That's when I can't believe that I had overlooked that masterpiece. That's a great album. I love that one and all her other stuff. You were both familiar with that album prior to that episode. Yes. Yeah. You've been holding out on me. Mm-hmm. You, you wanted me to be the naive one going in. <laughs> it feels good every now and then. It doesn't happen ever. Yeah, we got to give our sound guys some encouragement. Keep them going. All right, so we're down to the number one album on my list. I wish that we had a Casey Kasem sample to drop right here. <laughs> this week's number one. I think we're going to go with Earth, Wind, and Fire all in all. Dang. I did it. I did it. Jeremy's still lying to himself over there. He's fucking up. <laughs> I want to give a, I, I should give a uh, honorable mention though, to the, that Chambers brothers record as well. New generation. I was going to give a self-congratulating honorary mention to that one because that episode holds the distinction of uh, me earning the most compliments for this podcast of any other episode we've done. I had the most people hit me up after that one and say they really liked it. So thanks for listening. I'm glad we're you are still enjoyed. coming in. We're still we're still getting good comments on that 
episode. Just just mountains of fan mail. We've taken up a full extra bedroom in Jeremy's house, just housing all this fan mail for that Chambers Brothers episode. It's true. Well, that I think that concludes our uh, looking back and mentioning some of our favorites. But I, I'll tell you guys, I had a blast doing this. I can't. It was just a year ago that this podcast did not exist. It's true. I think the world is a better place for it. You know, looking back where we were then, where we are now. Yeah, the world is so much better. Yeah, year. the world's <laughs> definitely a better place. <laughs> We really, we really did our part with this, guys. We're making our impact. No, it's been, hey. a, it's actually been a very good thing to have to come and do every week while the world has kind of been in upheaval. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's made my life tolerable, so that's a good start. That's the best review I've heard yet for this podcast. <laughs> Makes life tolerable. I'd buy that for a dollar. Oh well, do we have anything else we want to say? About I know, season one. I know we don't want to throw shade necessarily, but I do kind of want to just ask like the one thing that was brought to the table that you were like, eh, not for me. Do you guys have one like that? I was trying to think if there's like a whole record we've done that I don't really dig. And I, I don't think we've done that. There's no record that we've done that I'm just like, eh, not for me. Don't want it. I don't know. There's like some songs and some of the records I didn't like. Like, you know, we already talked about how we're both very picky on the uh, the Ian Matthews material at times. But I still like a lot of stuff on that album. What about you, you, Jeremy? I know you're more of a hater than I am. I mean, the obvious is the 10CC. Right. Aside from 10CC, what's your least favorite record on this podcast? I, I feel like the one that grabbed me the least was the Evelyn King I don't think it was like a bad record, though. I think it was just like one of those not for me records. I think you should give it a second chance. Yeah, <laughs> that's one that I I liked the individual tracks. Like for me, the, this Jody Watley record is more track to track listenable than that one was. But that said, like I thought that each of the tracks on the Evelyn King under themselves were good. I think the Evelyn King record is better. Boom! Uh, Fight uh-oh. me. Slaps harder. That's okay. You can think that. <laughs> That's because taste is subjective. We can all enjoy different things sometimes. True. Well, one sweet day, we're going to go on tour and like go to a bunch of cities. But why am I even talking about that? I just dream of it. I want to do it. You got to keep the hope alive. Well, that's something I wanted to mention that I really, all of those episodes that we did on the road especially in retrospect, the ones we did in both East Lansing and Chicago were so much fun, especially because they were about a month before everything got shut down. And, you know, we had no idea at the time, but in retrospect, just thinking back to being able to do stuff like that. Yeah, that was a blast. Thanks to all those guests and all the guests that phoned it in during the pandemic. And yeah, yep. When we go out here, we're going to, Give them all a shout out, a thanks. Yep. But if, I don't know if there's anything else we want to say. I think Jeremy's going to be too afraid to do it, but I'm going to rate every one of the guests on a 10 scale. I don't fucking care. I'm going to do it. Get wow. ready. I'm going to do it. I don't think I could do that. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine if you're not man enough. Get ready, guests. I know you're all listening. I listen to other podcasts where they rate like every, they talk about like 
songs, you know, each episode's about a song, and they rate the songs at the end. We don't do that with the albums, but we do this really, like, we act like we're going to rate our guests. I'm going to do it. You think I'm joking, but I'm going to do it. Get ready. <laughs> Sean's it's not like work a that way, six-year-old Sean. boy right now, just like <laughs> with a baseball bat in his hand, like this like snake on the ground and he's like i'm gonna hit it just watch me i'm gonna hit it <laughs> listen i'm skipping town and burning every bridge i can find wow well we'll see you on season two of i'd buy that for a dollar thank you so much to everyone who's listened to an episode or all episodes it's been a real blast and don't ghost us we're gonna be back and it's gonna be sick it's gonna be sicker than ever should we tell them what we're gonna do for the the comeback what who the artist the special artist the special no, artist. No, it's a that's surprise. a surprise it's a, a surprise. surprise all right well i guess that's it then i'm gonna move across the country never see your faces in person again true i'm yeah. banned from philly but we won't get into that right now it's too late <laughs> that's a whole podcast. <laughs> yeah a boy's too rowdy it's too rowdy they can't take him on the east coast i did too many south street challenges and things got wild <laughs> Thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar for an entire year, nonstop. My name is Jeremy Ruggles. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Peter Cook. Let's rate these guests. Friends are hard to find, so be careful. We here at I'd Buy That for a Dollar would like to give a big shout out to all of our season one guests. Earl Jordan, Katie May, Will Moss, Eric Nervous, Chris Zania, Kurt, a.k.a. Useless Eater, John Olson, a.k.a. Insane Johnny, John Howard, Rich Tupika, Scott Schaff, Steve Krakow, a.k.a. Plastic Crime Wave, Shannon Gross, Ryan Werner, Trevor Coleman, Nicholas Naoti, and Taylor Rowley. Ten, all tens, I'm sorry. Sean, you're the worst. We will be back on October 6th. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please subscribe to our social media. We're on Instagram and Facebook. We have some exciting news coming regarding season two. Until next time, this has been I'd Buy That for a Dollar, season one. Bye.